I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about redlining. So grab your color-coded racist guidelines. And let's get civical. Welcome back. We missed you. Hello. I missed you desperately. I've been crying all night about it. And quite frankly, it's rude that you didn't call. But I will stop this bit right now and say welcome back. Welcome back. We have a great episode for you today. And just as an extra special treat, we have an extra special guest. Joining us today is Sophia Alexandra. She's a comedian, a writer, a podcaster, really a triple threat. Her album Father's Day was number one on iTunes, and we're very, very lucky to have her on the show today. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for coming Thank on. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for being with us virtually. And and it's so nice to see your face and be with you over Zoom. It's so nice to be with you guys. 
And I feel like if women were um, really just allowed to be in our natural um, patriarchal habitat, we would just keep thanking each other yes. until the podcast mm-hmm. ran out. No, thank you for inviting me. Thank no, you. Thank, no thank, you. thank you for coming. Oh, my God. No, thank, thank you, you so for sharing much. your work. No, thank you for allowing me to share my work. <laughs> thank you for your bravery. Thank, thank you, you for, for giving your me spirit. This thank you for your thank love. Thank you for your platform. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for your support. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for my upcoming lesson. <laughs> Thank you for your ears and your attention. Thank I you mean, for being oh generous enough to woman-splain to me for oh the next God. hour. It is oh our pleasure. It is our literal <laughs> pleasure. No, the pleasure is so mine. Happy. Stop. The pleasure. Oh. See, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> I know. It's just. It's true. Women would go on forever yeah. like this. Because it's we only get it from each other. feel overly grateful for no goddamn reason just for sure. existing, really. Just, well, thank yeah. you so much yep. for not murdering me. Thank you for letting me breathe another day. <laughs> it's, it's such an honor to be able to draw breath again. But weirdly enough, we're not talking about uh, female gratitude today. We are instead talking about redlining, which I'm super excited to talk about. I mean, what a topic, what a time to talk about this, I feel. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I've been reading about it like more and more because I'm just trying to stay educated. Yeah. Um, And I got to say, there's nothing like the discordance between like, is that the right word? Between um, there being an incredibly sunny day in Los Angeles with mm. like birds chirping and flowers blooming and you're just reading a thing about redlining. You're just like, oh, <laughs> fuck. Fuck. I can't be happy right now. This shit sucks. Yeah. Yes. But let's start with a very basic just a history of redlining just to kind of dip our toes into the pool. So these notes are coming from a great Thought & Co. piece by Beatrix Lockwood, Smart Cities Dive, Brandon Donnelly, Business Insider, who we love, Libertina Brandt, and Britannica. Love them. All of our friends. So. Cross section. Cross section. So redlining the definition is a process by which banks and other institutions refuse to offer mortgages or offer worse rates to customers in certain neighborhoods based on their racial and ethnic composition. What a horrible definition. (laughs) Yeah, it really makes it so detached from what it is, which is basically institutions. um, So greenlining is uh, the opposite of redlining. And that's being like, oh, this neighborhood is great uh, to invest in. This is what we want. And redlining is being like, oh, uh, people of color and black people live in this neighborhood. So we don't want them to get loans and we don't want uh, any good development to come to the area. We basically want to consider this area to be uninvestable and not something that uh, we think is a good idea, which right. is so fucked. It is, you could say, yeah. hashtag so fucked. That'll be the <laughs> hashtag for this episode. Uh, okay, so the term redlining came about in reference to the use of red marks on maps that loan corporations would use to outline mixed race or African-American neighborhoods. I hate when we are so literal. Like, yeah. oh, let me think of a name. How can I possibly, what should we call it? Bob, what do you think? Well, I don't know, Peter, what do you think? Well, we have red on the lines. 
red lines, redlining. It's like. Call it white supremacy mapping. Yeah, that's more <laughs> creative. And I think more. It's more honest. It's more honest about what it is. For sure. For sure. Yep. For we'll, sure. we'll make a movement to have that be what it's called. For sure. So more on the history. In the early 1900s, remember that? Before the practice of redlining began, racial homogeneity was preserved in suburban communities by implementing zoning laws that did not allow the construction of small, affordable houses or apartments. Love that. Love that. So this is like the original redlining. They just hadn't come up with the name yet. Perfect. Yeah. Well, they were like, and then eventually it became... You know, instead of having having it be like a local ordinance done by the government, they were like, we just won't give them money to buy a house. Of course. We'll build whatever. Yeah. They just, Which, you know, came out of like the poor whites being like, but hey, 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 we need places to live. Sure. And also it's like, I think the um, idea that African-Americans, and I say African-Americans because I think all of the literature of that time refers to black people as African-Americans, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, all uh, non-racist I think a lot of stuff, it, yeah. at least what I've yeah, been the reading. Yeah, non- the um, non-racist stuff, yes, I think you are, <laughs> I think you're correct, but, uh, yes. Yeah, I think like one of the things that's really insidious is people uh, frequently don't know the difference between racism and like prejudice or bigotry, Charming. and the difference is that it's ingrained in a system yeah that's that's the difference so when we're talking about like redlining this is how that plays out systematically that's the that's the biggest way that you can influence a lot the largest number of people is through like federal stuff that's that's fucked up but obviously i think a lot of people think that uh racism is the same thing as bigotry or prejudice and it's like no Racism refers to something that is much more insidious and much deeper mm-hmm. and that exists as part of institutions that keep white supremacy, you know, supreme. Yeah. No, that's mm-hmm. a that's an excellent point. Excellent yep. point. Okay. Racial homogeneity was also preserved through residential segregation as whites tended not to sell or rent to non-white persons, often by placing racially restrictive covenants in property deeds. Too much time on their hands is what I can say. So I'm glad you brought that up because... Tell me me everything. Say it. You know how I was saying, like, I've been... really kind of obsessed with the racism in the way that LA was designed. Yes. Like I live in Los Angeles and that really, I care about that. Yeah. So one of the things that is really fascinating um, is, so basically in 1910, uh, like 30, about between 35 and like 40%, I think it was like 36 or 37 or something um, of LA's uh, African-Americans were homeowners which was pretty insane. Yeah. So that was the top in the nation. So in 1910, that's what it was. And then basically, as LA started to get more uh, black people moving in from the deep south, white LA decided that this is fucked up and they needed to like basically do their version of Jim Crow. And that's when the racially restrictive covenants Covenants started because it was like, oh, um, people of color and black people cannot live in these houses or in these neighborhoods because they're classified white. 
And then when that didn't work, then they basically KKK violence targeted black families. They also burned crosses. They did drive-by shootings, which uh, I love when people... uh, when racists attribute uh, drive-by shootings to the black community, it's just pretty amusing when uh, cross burnings and drive-by shootings were pretty much successful from keeping people of color and black people out of uh, neighborhoods. Yeah. And the neighborhoods that were considered white at the time were like Eagle Rock, you know, <laughs> and um, Manhattan Beach is even more fucked up because Manhattan Beach sees the homes of all of the um, black property owners and they used uh, what was it like eminent eminent domain domain. yeah yeah and they raised the whole the whole thing and then the city took the land and turned the land um, into a park that was for white people only of course they did. So, yeah. So it started off as kind of cool. L.A. was having really good integration and right. things were going well. And a bunch of black communities were really flourishing and mixed communities, which is what we were talking about. And it's that was that was going to result in a vastly different Los Angeles than you see now. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting because, you know, when you think about that and it's like it, Nobody wants to acknowledge that history and like it's not history that is taught or uh, there's no accountability for that history. And it's just that's that's why it gets super frustrating when people make arguments that are like, you know, make arguments where it's like there there are there is no systematic racism. And it's like, how is how can you possibly make that argument? Yeah. When he like there we there's look at the fact the facts are grow the facts are so big. I don't know. It's, the evidence is there for it's everything. There. And then like, you know, my big thing is like freeways are kind of the biggest racist monument that we have in Los Angeles. You know, people are taking down Confederate I'm not the first person to say this at all. This is mm. for me like reading. Um this isn't a new idea, but people talking about there's no Confederate monuments in Los Angeles, like Actually, freeways are the biggest racist monument that we have because they were deliberately designed to go through black and mixed neighborhoods. Yeah. And uh, the black community is still feeling um, the effects of that. Like people don't understand that they literally ruined successful and beautiful communities of people like Sugar Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's definitely like, I think the Pico neighborhood now is called like it used to be Belmar and that was like a successful black community and doesn't exist anymore. And the way that the freeways go through communities that now still experience those really high levels of smog and pollution. So um, people who live there have worse asthma problems and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's still something that's in effect today. So if you think like, oh, the racist freeway thing is over. No, it's like it's it's ongoing. And unless we change the way that the city fundamentally functions with the way that we do public transport, like we're not ever going to get rid of that um, inequality. Right. So that is I'm so glad you brought that up um, because I feel like we don't talk about we I definitely haven't heard much about how racist freeways are and definitely certainly not the history of LA because you know they don't want to teach us that so I love that we're sharing that knowledge 
It's sad yeah. too, right? Because you feel like when we grow up, um, the time to learn, like they would te- take you to the Brea tar pits, you know, to learn. Mm. And you're like, okay, well, maybe it would be a little bit more useful than seeing your very dramatic and sad recreation of a baby watching its mom die or whatever the other way around yeah. is of yeah, those yeah, like yeah. uh dinosaurs like maybe spend that time and energy on teaching the people who live in Los Angeles how they benefit from a racist system because yeah. I had no idea it sucks that you don't, you're not taught that that should be part of your civic education hey, <laughs> pew 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 look exactly if we at could- your school if we could rewrite the curriculum, <laughs> I have so many edits to make. <laughs> I really do. I really yes. do. All right. I'm going to veer us back onto our notes. Yeah. So this is still in the 1900s area. So African-American newcomers who found a way to work around such policies like covenants and property deeds and practices to move into suburban neighborhoods usually found themselves in hostile environments. Yep. That makes sense. Nerd. That makes sense. 50 years after the abolition of slavery, local governments continued to legally enforce housing segregation through exclusionary zoning laws, city ordinances, which prohibited the sale of property to black people. Perfect. Love you.s. In 1917, when the Supreme Court ruled these zoning laws unconstitutional, Homeowners swiftly replaced them with racially restrictive covenants, which are agreements between property owners that banned the sale of homes in a neighborhood to certain racial groups. So if this is what we were talking about yeah. before. But like I love on, how we just adapt. Yeah. But like on the papier, on the paper. Yes. <laughs> the papier. The papier. <laughs> exactly right. The papier. By the time the Supreme Court found racially restrictive covenants themselves unconstitutional in 1947, the practice was so widespread that these agreements were difficult to invalidate and almost impossible to reverse. Yes, because they were on Le Papier, and so now you've got, like, a legal document that says, you know, who owns what house and who can own a house and all of it, and it became became legally difficult, which is exactly what you were talking about, Sophia. It's like... It becomes, you know, mm-hmm. that, I mean, that is like the pinnacle of institutionalized racism written in yep. the codes. It's on yep. paper. Mm-hmm. So continuing on, a li- there's a little bit more history just to give some context. So mortgages looked very different in the 1930s than they do now. Typically, they required a 50% down payment. I mean, what? <laughs> Wild. Okay. That's insane. Let's slow our roll here. Wild. I no. know. 50 I mean, like, maybe they cost... I don't know how much homes cost back then, but I feel like even adjusted for inflation. $15. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Like, come on. (laughs) So what, like $100 at most, right? Well, when you're making two cents a day, I mean, that's easy money. Oh, man. I know, right? Very within reach. Very within reach. Very attainable American dream. You know what's sad? Houses are way less affordable now than they were then. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Even though there's more of them. Yeah. Yes. So they required a 50% down payment and repayment within five to 10 years, as opposed to today's common 30-year time frame. So as <laughs> Sorry, business insider- Sorry, a 30-year time frame? They want you to just die in debt. Yeah. That's what they want. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They just want you to perish with debt. 30 yep. years? I don't They're have- like, pass it on to your children. Yeah. I don't have 10 good years left. Like, what are you talking <laughs> about 30 years? Get out of town. Bitch, how old are you? What are you saying, Lizzie? <laughs> 
I'm about to be 27 years old and I feel as though I'm You're 89. You're 27 and you just said that? Can and I please times? murder oh you? God. Yes. See, this I is why really I only have oh 10 good God. years left is somebody's going to kill no, me. No, you don't oh, even it. have that. You have today because I'm <laughs> coming over to your house Brooklyn. to oh murder you. Arden is going to cover oh, for me because yeah. she's on uh, my side. I, we're deleting Then I'm going to cut your young skin off of your face. <laughs> Wear my I'm skin. I'm going to it in my face. Oh Be my, my legacy. I feel like in this way you will, quote unquote, live on. Yes. But not in any way that's significant to what you wanted. That's oh my fine. God. That's fine. It would be an honor. It would be an honor. Arden's face. I and am a privilege. Dying. Somebody put me down. I've been saying from the beginning, somebody needs to put me down. Oh, man. Oh, God. Sophia, I love You're like, that you. I just confided did that. my learning disability in you. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, sorry. Sorry. You can't trust me. I'm a snake. No. God, that was you bite me. me in, you know what I mean? Bite me. Take me you know out. I was going to bite you. Poison me. <laughs> Please so don't good. poison me. I just pr- don't let it be poison. I've watched a lot of forensic files. I know how I want to go. You know, like I've, I've got it. I've thought it all out. It's like instead of a dream wedding, it's a dream murder. Like, please just look oh at my, my Pinterest. <laughs> look Get at some my ideas. Pinterest. Oh, my God. <laughs> Pinteresting murder is the whitest thing I've ever heard. And I love it. There it is. It's, I'm, I'm trying to rebrand us. I'm trying to rebrand us white people. You're like. My suicide note will be in many different fonts on a piece of driftwood. Yeah. I hope you're ready. I'm going to carve it, it bitch. It's and suicide o'clock. I'll sell it on my Etsy. Day. Oh, my God. Yeah. I hope it involves like a really good scripted fake call to the cops. Of course it does. A la John That's Binet. how they all start. A la John It's literally Binet. just, it's Patsy Ramsey's exact monologue. Oh. It's her exact 911 call. And they're like, who, you have a daughter? What? And it's just, it's, and they figure out, no, she's just recreating Patsy Ramsey's yeah. 911 call. Oh my God. And she thinks she's Jean Bonnet. Like it's. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Woo. So back Woo. to mortgages. That was, that was the, that was quite, that was. I'm not quite sure how we got there, but it was glorious. Look, <laughs> twist and turns. Uh, I take responsibility. That was so I'm good. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> that was so good. Um, okay, so around the early 1930s, the mortgage lending market was so dysfunctional. Do we her- care no. to guess why? It's the Great Depression. Uh-huh. Nobody has the money. The Great Depression. Every- everybody has loans. What do you mean? <laughs> the Great Depression. There's dust. Like, what do you mean the Great Depression? What is the Never like, heard of it. A lot of, of people it. were sad. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> How did everybody get sad at the same time? Casca say the Great Depression. Okay. Casca say. <laughs> In 1932, things got so bad that a thousand homeowners were defaulting on their mortgages daily. And the next year, half of all American mortgages were in arrears. So, like, nobody had anything. They had no money. They're living in these houses. Bop, 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 bop. So then... In 1933, the United States Congress created the Homeowners Loan Corporation. This is from Smart Cities. Quote, with foreclosures rising as a result of the Great Depression, the the task of the agency was to provide new low-interest mortgages to both homeowners and private mortgage lenders. Between 1933 and 1936, the agency served about 1 million households. By 1935... Go in. Yeah. By 1935, the parent company of the agency, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, oh, what a mouthful. Really just a lot of names in that name. Could have used it a rebrand. I know. They needed, they needed like a good 22-year-old just out of college. By, yeah. 
<laughs> Named Ashley. Named- and she's somehow so much better at anything that you've ever done online. Her middle name is like Oops. Bryn. I accidentally went viral. What? what? Oh, my Oopsies. <laughs> my dad. Ashley's I stan you. I wish I, I had stand you. Power. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Shout out to every Ashley. In an episode about redlining. <laughs> So the Federal Home Loan Bank Board decided to initiate something called the City Survey Program. The idea was to look at local real estate trends, including the racial and ethnic composition of the country's largest cities, to or- in order to get a better understanding of how to manage all of the outstanding loans. So, like, everything's crashing, and they're like, okay, but who owes the money? Like, which – who owes it? Which demographic of people? It? So that's that's how we that's yeah. his that's like the beginning very bare bones structure history of redlining and how we basically come up with redlining as a country. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. let's talk about the policies of redlining. Here we go. The federal government was not involved in housing until 1934 when the Federal Housing Administration, or the FHA, was created as part of the New Deal. The FHA sought to restore the housing market after the Great Depression by incentivizing home ownership and introducing the mortgage lending system we still use today. The goals of the FHA wasn't to make the housing market more equitable, but to create a market boom. Sure. Beginning in 1934, the Homeowners Loan Coalition included in the FHA underwriting handbook, quote, residual security maps that were used to help the government decide which neighborhoods would make secure investments and which should be off limits for issuing mortgages. The maps were color-coded according to these guidelines. I see where this is going. Do we see? Do we see? Here it comes. I see. Oh, that's what oh. I was talking about. There's fucking green lining. Yep. Let's talk about the colors, honey. You ready for it? So green. Best. Green means white. 
W-H-I-T-E is green. Is green. That's how we spell best is W-H-I-T-E, according to them. So green areas represented in demand up-and-coming neighborhoods where, quote, professional men lived. <laughs> you know those professional men? Love to see them. These neighborhoods, <laughs> we love it. We love to see them. These neighborhoods were explicitly homogenous, lacking, oh, a single foreigner, or I'm not gonna, I don't, I don't want to say it, but a black person. So, yeah, there are no people of color in this neighborhood. Yes, indeed. That's how you spell W H I T E. Mm-hmm. Green lining. Green lining. Now there's blue, which is, quote, still desirable. These neighborhoods had reached their peak, but were thought to be stable due to the low risk of infiltration by non-white groups. So fucked up that they look at people living, like, next to each other yeah. as infiltration. Yes. That's the words you use for enemy forces. It's yes. like, are we fucking fighting the Nazis right now? That's what, what they felt like it was. On? It was like, that's how they treated it. Yeah, it's fucked. So fucked. It, they I, they absolutely yeah. viewed it as an infiltration. And it's fucked. It's fucked. But just wait. It gets worse. So now we're on yellow. And yellow means definitely declining. So most yellow areas bordered black neighborhoods. They were considered risky due to the, quote, threat of infiltration of foreign-born black or low-grade populations. Isn't that so awful? And now, finally, red, which means hazardous. That's what it means, hazardous. Red areas were neighborhoods where, quote, infiltration had already occurred. These neighborhoods, almost all of them populated by Black residents, were described by the HOLC as having a undesirable population and were ineligible for FHA backing. So that is, those are the policies that we put in place to make this happen. And I'm going to just throw in some like. Throw it in. Final LA freeway. Throw it in. Dunk it in. Is racist stuff. Yeah. So um, what I wanted to say is um, that when they were building the freeway system in L.A., basically the white neighborhoods that had a lot of money could spend that money to campaign so that the freeways wouldn't be built through their neighborhoods. Yeah. So basically Pasadena, Beverly Hills, obviously, fought that stuff off. And because of them... Um, next time you're mad in traffic in L.A., but because of them is why only 61% of the freeway system oh. that was originally proposed got built. Sure. So if you're mad the next time you're in traffic, it's because freeways don't go through the neighborhoods that they should have also gone through. And <laughs> almost 40%, I mean, literally 39% um, of the freeways that were necessary to make everything functionable and accessible didn't get built. So please be mad at Beverly Hills. Please be mad at Pasadena. Please be mad at, you know, um, the way this racist system was constructed. And um, also just the idea, I don't know if like you guys might have talked about this, but how um, suburban sprawl and stuff and the way it's yeah. treated is also pretty racist. Because, like, the suburban housing boom, um, you know, 
was pretty, pretty segregationist, you know? Um, They wanted that, like, the car-dependent people would go and live in the suburbs, and those people um, really wanted the federal guidance and all of that to make it so no other people other than white people got integrated into those neighborhoods. So basically, like, I believe that between, like, in the 50s, um, in the beginning of the 50s, I think, like, less than 5% of the units built in L.A. were even open to people of color. Wow. So not only, yeah, (laughs) so not only was like, they were forbidden from building racially segregated housing and black people were not allowed to buy things. So just like the way that it was all constructed specifically defines what LA looks like today. Yeah. And, you know, and also think about it like this, when the freeways are built in a way that they go through, like, say the a neighborhood and basically a non-white person driving through a neighborhood that's considered on the white side of town, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a way more, they have a way greater chance of getting pulled over. You know, it's just so much easier for cops to find you, to target you, to feel like, oh, you're not allowed to be here. And like when they were trying to sell freeways to people, they were basically like, there were pamphlets out there and the pamphlets were like, hey, uh, freeways are like the greatest barrier, you know, between uh, your white neighborhood getting infiltrated or whatever. It's like it'll preserve your neighborhood. And yeah, it's just pretty fucked up. And um, like I said, the some of the effects that I think like we should definitely talk about and um, think about is that those freeways still run through black neighborhoods and that health effects from them still really affect the people who live there. Yeah. You know, pollution literally kills people. Yeah. And there's just so many studies on if you grow up around smog as a kid, you have like asthma and other lung conditions when you're older. You will start to decline earlier when you like start aging, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's basically not the kind of thing where Uh, It's we're learning about like a historical thing that is no longer in effect. We're actually learning about a historical thing that is still in effect and that in it, it's sad that most of us don't know about it and live in a city that is carved out specifically by that. Yeah. Like at one point, even they um, they proposed another system that would be uh, like a high speed monorail and that would. That sounds like a Simpsons episode, (laughs) but um, it was supposed to literally like make it so that the busiest like areas that were the most congested for roads like weren't so congested so that it could really redistribute the traffic in a way that made more sense. Mm -hmm. But people were so mad about the integration and the um, transportation you know, (laughs) uniting and making people not heterogeneous. Uh, yeah. then that really uh fucked it up, and it never got off the ground. So we're still feeling effects from that, and yeah, yeah. I just want to yeah. talk about that. A no, little. absolutely. Yeah, I think you're. Yeah, it's such a fair point. Yeah, for and, sure. You know, definitely love to highlight it because it is happening right now, and everybody should not be in denial about that for sure. But I that's actually a great segue because our last section is potential 
lasting consequences that we're living today, Boom. probably. So here we go. The most recent estimate by the Federal Reserve, this is coming from Business Insider, estimates that white families have a median net worth nearly 10 times that of black families. Black Americans' access or lack thereof to home ownership is a major factor in the gap. The national home ownership rate for black families is 44% versus 73.7% for white families. That's a huge gap. Yeah. It's a huge gap. It's a huge gap. So there was a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, her name is Amy Hillier. And she did like some statistical analysis of like the redlining, you know, how how many loans were given out. And she you know, looked at the numbers of it. And she found that 62% of the loans that the homeowners loan corporation gave out went to grade D neighborhoods. Which she found, which she like, I think found surprising because she was expecting it to be less than that, given that these are the grade D neighborhoods, as the government named them. But actually, 62% of the loans went to them. She argued that the agency itself <laughs> wasn't actually redlining in practice. So there's that. Well, not in practice. Not in it's practice. It's really different. It's like she- in spirit. So. <laughs> yeah. She did, however, discover slightly higher interest rates for properties located near and in the bottom security grade. So maybe they, you know, even if they're still getting 62% of the loans, they're paying a lot more than they would if they were in a different level. Yeah. Still, Redfin, which is a housing and mortgage-focused organization, they recently found in an analysis of 41 major metro areas that the typical homeowner in a former D neighborhood has earned $196,000 in home equity since 1980 while the typical homeowner in a former A neighborhood has earned 408000 So, like, double. They've earned double in their yeah. their earnings, that, you know, have doubled in, in the same period of time. So there is, like, it's just showing you the, the degree of discrepancy and how it, how is, you know, the things that are, were rooted back in redlining back in the 30s, how those consequences have continued to the present. Yeah. The National Bureau of Economic Research recently published a working paper called Racial Sorting and the Emergence of Segregation in American Cities. And the key finding here is as follows, quote, Our preferred estimates suggest that white flight was responsible for 34% of the increase in segregation over the 1910s and 50% over the 20s. So this is like, white flight is like when people, when white people would see people of color moving into their neighborhoods, they would be like, it's not safe, we gotta go. And they would move to a different neighborhood. Quote, this is still from the, the study, quote, our analysis suggests that segregation would likely have arisen in American cities, even without the presence of discriminatory institutions as a direct consequence of the widespread and decentralized relocation decisions of white urban residents. So there's like already this undertone that people are undertaking just of their own accord that are like, we the white people didn't want to be near the people of color in their neighborhoods. They didn't want the people of color in, in what they consider to be their neighborhoods. And then you tack on this, like, institutionalized part of it as redlining, and then you've got, like, two things that are working in tandem to create a really big problem. Like, white yep. flight was responsible for a lot of it, and then you add on the redlining, and it's just, it balloons it and makes it so much worse. Yeah, it's a systematic plan that um, makes it so that um, black families um, cannot accumulate um, wealth. Mm-hmm. Can't. Correct. Can't own homes that they can pass down to their children the way that white people can and stuff like that. It's this is this this is where it starts. So if like 
I mean, a lot of people do know about this, but if you haven't, if you didn't, don't be ashamed. Like, we are literally not taught this for a reason. Nope. So we got to do our own education. Exactly right. Exactly right. So iconically, the practice of redlining was officially outlawed in 1968 with the passage of the Fair Housing Act, but the long-term repercussions and some practices obviously continue to this day. The Fair Housing Act of 1968, which explicitly prohibited racial discrimination, put an end to legally sanctioned redlining policies like those used by the FHA. However, like racially restrictive covenants, redlining policies were difficult to stamp out and have continued even to recent years. A 2008 paper about predatory lending, for example, found denial rates for loans to black people in Mississippi to be disproportionate compared to any racial discrepancy in credit score history. So, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And then in 2010, not 10 years ago, an investigation by the United States Justice Department found that the financial institution Wells Fargo had used similar policies to restrict loans to certain racial groups. The investigation began after a New York Times article exposed the company's own racial bias lending practices. The Times reported that loan officers had referred to their black customers as, quote, this is horrible, mud mm-hmm. people. What? I know, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's about to get worse. Yeah. And they referred to the subprime loans that they pushed on them as, quote, ghetto loans yeah so this is 2010 like this is yep this is yesterday you know this is today and this is tomorrow yep many neighborhoods that were labeled yellow or red by the holc back in the 1930s are still underdeveloped and underserved compared to nearby green and blue neighborhoods with largely white populations blocks in these neighborhoods tend to be empty or lined with vacant buildings. They often lack basic services like banking or healthcare and have fewer job opportunities and transportation options. And that yeah. is today. You know, there's no there's no denying that at all. And those those are those are the notes that we have right now on redlining. Cuz it's like it's like cuz it's still happening. Like it's Yeah. It's just happening in a different way. It's like it's like how all it's like how all of these, you know, racist institutions function as they just evolve and morph into something different. You know? Yeah. But it's still there. Yep, exactly. It's still there. Yeah. Like the the red the redlining practices of the government, you know, like that's those have been moved on and passed on to the to the private banks. And so that's how you see like right. the Wells Fargo like that's the Wells Fargo situation. Yeah. Yeah. And like Wells Fargo is not the only one. <laughs> no. It's no. all of them. All yep. those dang banks. Mm-mm. Not cute. Mm-mm. And what's ironic is, so at one point, LA had a really good transit system, the mm. red car system. You might remember it from like uh, Who Shot Roger Rabbit or whatever. I think mm. they did a version of it. But basically, it was actually pretty good on segregated access. And it was a really good system of transportation that actually made it so that people from from of different races and integrated communities like you know Boyle Heights that I've already mentioned and um and Watts and stuff those were like 
served by the system. Yeah. So then when they abandoned it and then, you know, went for the racist freeways, it was even worse. So it's just like there are alternatives and frequently they have already been shunned for being something that isn't racist. So that's wild. And I do want to say really quickly that um, so I have a friend who is a super funny comic and a great artist. His name is Greg Edwards. You should follow him on Instagram at uh, Greg Comedy. And he does this incredible art of uh, basically he'll do like uh, Angela Davis and her uh, face over the redlining map of Birmingham oh wow and then wow he basically it's his redlining series and he does that with like Toni Morrison and Lorraine Ohio she he does it with Michael Jackson and Gary Indiana he does it with Dick Gregory in St. Louis Missouri so there's um it's a really cool idea and I it's very he's super talented and it's a really kind of shocking and effective way to learn about some of this stuff yeah. So if you want to support a really talented black artist and comedian, go to Greg Comedy and buy one of his uh, Redline uh, series prints. Yes, please do. That sounds that sounds amazing. I love. Yeah. I love hearing things like that. You know, support artists, support black artists, and you know, hopefully one day we won't have to worry about redlining policies. But that is not this day. But that is our episode on redlining. Sophia, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me, ladies. Yes. And once again, to our sweet, sweet listeners, Sophia's album, Father's Day, is out. It's on iTunes. It's number one. So let's keep it there. Do you want to plug your socials? Sure. You guys can follow me at the Sophia on Twitter and Instagram. That's S O F I Y A. And I have two podcasts. One is if you're into 90 Day Fiance, <gasps> you should follow my podcast. You should listen to my podcast, 420 Day Fiance. And <laughs> if you are into love and sex and freaky stuff, you should listen to my other podcast, Private Parts Unknown. Ooh. Love it. Love it. We love, I love the, 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 the sort of differences between those two podcasts. <laughs> yeah. It shows, it shows a wide variety of interests and I am here I'm for so it. Deep. You're so deep. You're so deep. And guys, if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. You can rate us. You can review us. You can subscribe to us. We love you so, so much and we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye. Bye.